Welcome to Hardy Party Five and a Half. Scott, hello. Hello. Scott. Hey. Are you even going to communicate with me? Oh, hey. Did we start the show? Yeah, we started oh, the show. Oh, I'm so sorry. Thanks for showing up. Yeah, I was kind of lost in my phone there for a minute. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like I needed to speak up? I did feel like you needed to speak up. Well, really I mean, what did you out. feel like when I was totally engrossed in my phone? Yeah, I felt like you were not available for communication, even though we had agreed upon communicating. Yes. <laughs> for 30 years now, we've agreed on communicating. Yes. Or at least trying. At least trying. And I, you were just gone. Yeah. And it makes a good point about life today and the modern social media and phones and yeah. distractions all the time. And we have a great guest on today. Yes. Brian Mayfield. Mm -hmm. He has written a book called Speak, Speak Up. Up. <laughs> and it's all about having conversations with each other, even hard conversations. Right. But doing it in a loving way right. so that we can communicate and build each other up. It's important. Before we get started on this podcast, we want to let you know that we just had a huge power surge. It's been like 180 degrees like a brown in Texas out here. for like, I don't know, 65 years, forever. <laughs> it's been so hot. It's been we like finally two, two had weeks straight. Like a minute of rain today. And I think every person I know was like playing in puddles outside. Anyways, our, our internet was just a little crazy during this interview. So we hope you will bear with us. It is such a great interview. You're going to want to hear everything Brian has to say. Please enjoy our interview with Brian Mayfield. Okay, Brian, as a pastor, you decided to write a book on communication. There's 1,000 other things in the Bible you could have written a book about. So why did you pick communication? Um, I think because I've, I've seen the evidence that communication is where most relationships break down. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are other things that are often a byproduct of that, um, but whether it's going into marriage with unrealistic expectations um, or things that are miscommunicated or just not communicated at all. Mm -hmm. um, very often, if I sit in a counseling situation, uh, I sit and listen and I, it's almost like you can pinpoint, oh yeah, there, you guys stopped talking. Yeah. Um, I, I have watched even within, whether it's in your own family, you know, you'll watch this relative who has tension with this relative. And it's like, if you would just be honest with each other, you, yeah. you, you'd cut all of this malarkey out, <laughs> but we just go on that way. And so I think that there's, there's probably a lot of, um, whether it's books, advice out there on, not opening your mouth. Um, I felt like we needed the opposite. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we're all we're all going to open our mouth regardless. Let's make make it productive. All right. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I was just talking to our middle son. Jake just got engaged. 
Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I told him, I said, you know, don't check out of this process of planning this wedding. I said, this process of planning this wedding is not good wedding practice. This is good marriage practice. You're yeah. going to work on communication. You're going to work on compromise and you will use those and things conflict, for like the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm hoping he stays present. Yeah. When you talk about the communication and I know in our relationship, when we first got married, I was the, like you talk about having tough conversations. But I was the guy that if we were going to have a conflict, I would recede and I wouldn't want to talk. And then she would want to jump on it and let's talk about it right now, which I think is healthier if done in a loving way. <laughs> but I think that's the key. Yeah. And that's what we learned about each other is like, I need to go away and think about it. And I can't talk about it right now. Yeah. But why is it so hard for people just to have those hard conversations? Though? Mm -hmm. Uncomfortability. Um, now, I will say, I think that you raise a good point there, Scott, because like Morgan and I, I think are the opposite of you and Rebecca, like I am the let's talk about it now. Yeah. And what I, I began to realize, and I even see this on like the staff here at our church, I have people like myself who process by talking about something, hmm. but then other people have to process before they talk about it. And so I, I think, again, the key is you have to find that middle ground, but ultimately you, you, it can't just be avoidance. Mm -hmm. And this also reminds me, you, you know, in the book I quoted many times, uh, the book Crucial Conversations, which I would just say to anybody on a professional level, if you need to write, read a book on communication, read theirs before you read mine. Um, <laughs> the whole the whole book is based on the premise that so we'll avoid this conversation because of the fear. Like, well, there's a 50 50 shot if I have this conversation that it, it might be uncomfortable and maybe there's like a 25 percent chance. There might even be a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. But if I don't have the conversation, there's like a almost a hundred percent chance bad outcome. But okay. I'll live with that. I'll live with that yeah. rather than face the possible um, uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think we just got to be willing to wade into the tension in life a little bit more often. Yeah, for sure. When I think it's those expectations that short circuit us, because we're thinking worst case scenario, usually mm -hmm. we're not thinking, oh, this is going to be great. We're thinking, oh, what could bad things are going to happen if we have this conversation. Right. So, right. Well, yep. and the other thing about those communication styles is for us, it's like I realized that me kind of going after him and like needing to have that conversation now was selfish motivation. I needed that so I could sleep. You know, yep. I need that so I can okay. like, yeah, have a, a brain rest because I'm not stopping thinking about it until it's resolved, you know, so it was really purely selfish had nothing to do with, you know, truly resolving conflict. It was just to make me have a better moment, yeah. you know, hmm. which is yeah. difficult. So in the book, you talk about the importance of face-to-face -face communication, which we totally barely do anymore. Scott and I were just talking about how we both have jobs, me being a hairdresser, where we're privileged enough that when people are, and he's, you know, graphics, he's usually with people. Most of my conversation happens in my chair. It's 30 minutes of time without a phone. I can't hold a phone and cut hair. And most people are not on the phone when they're sitting in my chair. Most mm -hmm. people. 
unless they're between the ages of 13 to 17. Uh, But for the most part, that face-to-face communication is so important. What do you think are the benefits of that? Why why should we really make sure we're doing that? So funny story, like I remember, um, I I really started preaching um, heavy when we lived in Kansas. And, And one day I came home on a Sunday and Morgan said, Hey, are you aware of the faces that you make when you're preaching? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said, so I think that there are times that you're not mad, but it looks like you're mad. And she said, you have angry eyebrows. And and she, she drags me in the bathroom and she said, make this face. And all of a sudden, like, I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh my God. And while there was a kind of a moment of horror there, I, that was kind of the beginning of, of helping me really see that I, I communicate big time with way more than just my mouth. Mm-hmm. And, and so, like I tell a story in the, in the book about an email exchange. Um, I, I hate email. And, and it's for reasons like this. I mean, you get an email with all cap bolded words and stuff. And, and you may have writing this email that if you saw their face saying these things to you, you would realize, Oh, they're not angry. They're just emphasizing it, but you're reading their email thinking if they could see me right now, they would beat me to a pulp. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the other reason why during this, this season of pandemic that we thankfully are moving away from, I, I hope, mm-hmm. um, I didn't want to not wear a mask because I didn't care about anybody's health. It's because I communicate with my face mm-hmm. and I'm out in public and I'm smiling at people who have no idea that I'm smiling at them. And they just think, Hey, why is that a guy staring at me? Right. With those um, eyebrows. <laughs> with those angry yeah, eyebrows. Talking <laughs> to me with his eyes. Um, but I, I think that our, our, our tone our face, there's so much more about conversation and communication than just our words. And we, we lack that. Um, and that's why I will say that while again, like I would obviously rather be sitting down with y'all face to face, person to person doing this, this is way better than email or text or, or what have you. Yeah. And so um, I just think that um, face-to-face, being able to see somebody, hear their voice, um, I, I think it's, it's being, like you said, I mean, it's, it's being massively neglected now. Um, and it's not that we need to do away with email or text, but I think we've got to be really selective mm-hmm. about our modes of communication. Yeah. Um, the the expectation or the motive that we have and what we want to say and all that, that probably ought to have some bearing on the, the method. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you're just like, I think of guys, usually when we're texting back and forth, a guy is like, we just want information. (laughs) Like we're going to meet here. We're going to do this. And that's more of a text conversation. But if you need to emotionally talk to someone Mm -hmm. about something and you see it all the time and you see it on Facebook and social media, 
when you start getting into deep, deeper conversations that involve some emotion, mm -hmm. it's hard to tell what, how people, like you said on the email in your book, it's like, you thought this person was irate and they really weren't. No. Right. And I think we get the same thing on social media and text, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're reacting like this when mm -hmm. really it wasn't that big a deal. Yeah. To them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and with you, it's your eyebrows. With me, it's my voice. Cause I tend to be, I'm usually pretty low key and quiet and, but I can get a booming voice and like I can, it is, and, and I can get loud and I sound angry, but I'm not. So I've realized like, I don't think there's I some, am. There was there's sometimes. Time, the last time we played softball together, I think you were a little angry. <laughs> I think I was for a moment. There, yeah. was a, there was a little, I mean, a little bit. I did apologize after. <laughs> You talked about apologizing. We had to have that hard conversation. But face to face, right, hard conversation. Yeah, in the dugout. <laughs> but I think 90% of the time, I'm probably not angry or anything, but I mm -hmm. sound that way. So, mm -hmm. like you with your eyebrows, I've got to think, okay, if I get loud here, people are going to think I'm angry. Yeah. So, I need to make sure mm -hmm. I'm toning it down. It's just funny because I'm really the loud one. I mean, yeah. I'm just the more gregarious one. And yeah. So, but you tend to come across that way. Yeah. yeah so yeah, voice. I totally yeah. get it with the eyebrows <laughs> and the voice. So. Yeah. So the subtitle of your book is "Speak the Truth and Love." So what does that mean, and what does that look like, just in practical terms? Well, you know, I don't think we can ever like disconnect it from the context that Paul was giving it, which it has to be in in Paul's context. It's among Christians, and so I think that an important part of it is um, Ephesians 4, where Paul says this, you can't, um, how do I word this? Or maybe I should say it a different way. It has to be married to 1 Corinthians 13. Mm. So like speak the truth in love. Well, what, what is love, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and so if I speak the truth to you, well, that is a really ugly shirt. Um, <laughs> no, no. Paul would say, yeah, what, what's your purpose here? Mm -hmm. um, but if, if I'm believing something that's a lie and you come to me and say, hey, brother, I don't want to hurt you, but I love you enough to tell you, you're misunderstanding, uh, you're misperceiving, um, you're going down the wrong path here. Mm -hmm. That's a different story than just, you know, uh, you remember Jerry used to always say, hey, I, Jesus loves you, but I hate your guts. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> um, and he would obviously say that as a joke. Like, that yeah. is not speaking the truth Yeah. in love. Um, I, I think it's just as much a, an examination of my own motives as what, what it is that I feel the Lord compelling me to say to a brother or sister. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, and as a pastor in your community, it seems like it's getting harder and harder to have those conversations with mm -hmm. each other, because I think in yeah. a lot of ways, our faith, we've made it so personal that, hey, Jesus is, he's dealing with me this way, but he's dealing with you in, a, in another way. So how do you break through and say, hey, we're a community and we should be edifying and helping each other? Mm -hmm when we tend to have the idea of, hey, just leave me alone. I'm okay over here. So as a pastor, how do you facilitate yeah. that? Well, you know, so the last several years, I, not trying to make this a, 
um, soapbox or anything, but I've begun trying to, to tell people the whole idea of accountability um, really a facade a lot of times because accountability, like, you know, Scott, if you and I said, hey, let's, let's be accountability partners, you holding me accountable is only going to happen to the level that I'm willing to open myself up and tell you the truth, right? And so speaking the truth in love happening among Christians, it's dependent on both parties because I'm going to come to you and do that if there's been something in our relationship that indicates to me that you have said, I will receive it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm probably about to open a can here. Um, (laughs) I I talk about my mom in the book a lot, and y'all probably knew my mom long enough to know, you know, my mother is a, I say what I think, and then think about it later um, kind of person, which is where I genetically got it. (laughs) Um, But mom, I don't think like my mom can meet someone for the first time. And I think it's a generational thing. She just assumes you must want me to tell you the truth, (laughs) you know? Um, And again, I don't, I don't like think she's wrong in her motive, but what she, I think maybe doesn't see sometimes, and, and this may be a lot of us, the other person isn't ready to receive that. Yeah. Like there's, there's, there's no relationship there that says, yeah, I've seen that you love me and I trust you enough that, wow, that hurt, but I needed to hear that. Right. So it's, it's really dependent on both parties. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Our, our middle son, Jake, he says to his friends, do not ask my mom questions. You do not want to know the answer to, <laughs> but if they ask, I guess they're willing to receive it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So in the book, you turn a corner from talking about like your personal experience to biblical stories and principles. How did you choose those topics to talk about? It, it, it was kind of nuts. Um, like the first part of the book um, in Scott, I think you kind of said this earlier. Um, like it just wrote itself. Um, and then as I started kind of of like pinpointing these biblical themes. Um, I think that the second, well, really the last two thirds of the book, the whole biblical part of it, um, I wrote that in like the last six months. I think that the, it was like the first seven chapters, it took six years. And then the rest of the book took took like six months. Um, Never had any intent of like, all of the chapters ending in like, you know, conversation, isolation, blah, blah, blah. It was like, I looked down after like six or seven. I was like, Hey, I got like a theme going here. (laughs) And of course, then I was like, well, I got to stick to the theme. Um, But it just kind of kept sort of writing itself. Mm -hmm. Um, I will also tell you, this is where, you know, while there are times I'm a hater of technology, um, there are other sides where I'm a lover of it. Um, I use, I don't know if y'all use Evernote. Um, I, I use, use Evernote a little bit for work stuff. Yeah. So I use it all the time, but I bet you, I wrote half of this book 
um, driving down the road, I would open Evernote and I would just start talking. And so I would spew it all out and then I would pull it up later and edit it, finish the thought, whatever. Um, I actually started realizing that talking it out was easier for me to write it than just sitting down and writing it. Hmm. Um, so the themes, I wish I had this like grandiose vision to tell you about, but they just sort of, just sort of <laughs> came. <laughs> Once you got going. So there is a chapter in the book called Opposition. Yep. And you, you address yeah. the prosperity gospel, which I know you're pretty passionate about. And you talk about how Paul confronted Peter and Corinthians. And I mean, that's a hard conversation they had to have. So in a practical sense, how do we have those conversations now? How does that look now in a modern world? Yeah. Um, so I, I will say again, I think this is a thing depends on both parties. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I'm still a big believer in while we've got the, the, the word of God right here available to us all the time. Like when you can even go further than that and you can go to Jesus himself, like let's always just start with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I go to Matthew 18 and while I really, that me confronting Joel Osteen. I don't really have that platform or something like that. Um, I, I don't have the, the open door to confront somebody on a, a huge macro level. But in my life, um, in those times of if someone has done something that I believe um, opposes the gospel um, or is they're, they're, maybe they didn't mean to, but they're walking in sin. Jesus said the first thing to do is go to that brother or sister privately. And, you know, uh, I, I, I think about um, this happening in the church where I was before I came here. And um, the pastor going to a guy who he knew was in sin, he went privately to him. The guy refused to repent of a very serious sin. Um, then he came to me and said, I need you to go with me. I'm like, oh, great. Didn't sign up for this, but we went, um, thought that we were seeing repentance in the guy's life. Repentance didn't happen and ultimately had to follow through with first Corinthians of saying for the sake of his repentance, we have to essentially expel him from the church. Um, that was the hardest thing I'd ever been through probably in my life up to that point. Um, however, the, the peace that I felt like I had in the moment was being able to say, but this is what Jesus said to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I think that we need to follow the, the Lord's instructions but it also, again, it's one of these things where it depends on both parties because there are people that come to me and oppose me. And it may be that they have a wrong perception of what I did or what I said. But if I'm closed off to that to begin with, like 
I'm just backed into a corner. You can't approach me about that. Then I maybe even miss an opportunity to say, oh man, I'm sorry that you, you, you thought that's what I meant. That wasn't it at all. Um, and a, a big problem with the world that we're living in right now, the culture that we're living in is that everybody like assumes the attack position yeah. or, or the I'm being attacked position. Um, and so I think this whole idea of opposition, like we got to like, remember just how to have a civil conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so again, I'll be a broken record. It, it really depends on both parties. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think you mentioned like on the social media and stuff, I think there's also a need in us to be right. Like we just want to oh, be yeah. right. I don't, I don't care what the other person's saying. I just need to let you know that I'm right. Mm -hmm. And right. I think, yep. and it goes back to motivations like Rebecca's talking about. It's like, what's your motivation in bringing the subject up and why are we talking about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So from a Christian perspective, what's the difference between anger and righteous indignation and how do we know the difference? How do we know when we're doing one or the other? So I think that personally, um, we have to go through the hard work of examining our motive um, and, and maybe like asking the question, what am I looking for or hoping for in this moment? And, and granted, in moments of anger, <laughs> probably not taking the time to even think, um, what am I hoping for here? Um, and that's why James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Right. Um, you know, probably one of the most misinterpreted and, you know, miscontextualized scriptures in all the Bible is Jesus turning the tables over in the temple. Um, but we know full well, Jesus didn't walk into the temple and like blow his top. Um, that was very like thought out what he was going to do. So like in, in instances of, of me looking at something going on in the world and saying, is this like fleshly anger or is this righteous indignation? I think that I can ask myself, like, is this rooted in like a, a, a desire for vengeance and retribution? Mm -hmm. Or is this rooted in a desire for restoration and repentance? Mm -hmm. Because even with people out there that I vehemently disagree with, like maybe we are on, we're not on completely different sides of the fence. Like we're on different sides of the earth. Mm -hmm. Like, do I want like harm for them or for them to like pay for their wrong thinking? Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, do I want someone to come to a place of um, restoration, repentance, reconciliation? Um, what am I after? Right. Because I think that like the, the frequent use of the word justice in our day and time has, is even brought things to the place where like in the church, when people come to us and, and even want to talk about justice, we have to get real specific. Like, what do you mean by social justice or, right. or issues of justice, because God's idea seems to be a bit different than 
than ours. But between the anger and the righteous indignation, I, I think that it, it comes down to, uh, it's on us to really examine our motives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like I was, I guess, talking about when I was saying, when I'm the one that comes after you yeah. and realizing that my motivation was purely selfish. <laughs> yeah, to see where that's coming from, for yeah. sure. It, was, it wasn't necessarily an angry moment, but it's still a time where I had to dissect my motivations. Okay, now we're going to talk about vengeance, and this involves yeah. your dad and squirrels. <laughs> I thought this was a pretty funny story in the book. So tell us about your dad, his war with the squirrels, and how that impacted, like, how you think about life and death. I mean, so on the one hand, knowing that you guys know, you know, some of my, my dad's story, but that not everybody listening may, yeah. you know, so um, January 9th, 2004, um, and this is one of these moments in time, like, you guys remember where you were on 9-11, I was in the bedroom of a kid that had just come home from Marine boot camp in my youth ministry. My brother calls me, says, dad fell through the ceiling. Uh, We're in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, what in the world happened? You know, well, call me and let me know if everything's okay. And, And Brent's like, yeah, I don't think you understand what I'm telling you. Like dad's not conscious. Um, 12 hours later, we're on a plane to get to Dallas, Fort Worth. Um, you know, my dad was in a level one coma for five weeks. I mean, it was five weeks before he opened his eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was told twice, your husband is never going to wake up. Um, you're never going to speak to him again. So, I had come to the point where, and, and I think there are people who, who would say, well, God, that's morbid, Brian. And I guess all I know to say to that is, sorry, but <laughs> I came to the point, and it may have even been subconscious of, I'm never going to my dad again. Like, I, I think that in my, my mind, in my heart, my dad had died. And so when my dad, over a a year-long um, hellacious process recovered, and he was never fully himself again. Like we were given this gift, and so when my dad got cancer, um, and and it, I mean, he fought that cancer um, for two and a half years um, when it began to be like this, he's not going to beat this. Um, I, I had already said goodbye to my dad, like four years before that, Mm -hmm. I'd all of a sudden been given this gift of these added years. So I got to this point where I, my main goal is I don't want my dad to suffer through this anymore. Mm -hmm. But so in the midst of all this, um, you know, my parents had to move out of the house that they lived in when my dad had his accident. They moved into a different house, and somewhere in the midst of all this, squirrels start getting into my parents' attic, and I guess as somebody with a traumatic brain injury, my dad just got real, like, tripped up on, these squirrels are not coming in my house. Um, I'm going to get them, 
And, you know, like mom would be calling us every other day. Oh, your dad, he's, he wants me to go check on the squirrel traps in the attic, blah, blah, blah. And so it was one of these things that, um, you know, the moment I, the, the story I share in the book, um, I, I think that the, the real thing for me there was you can't, you can't like in, in the midst of death staring at you in the face, you're not going to make light of something that ridiculous and silly if, if you don't just have a real piece about death. Yeah. Um, and while I don't know that my dad like, like, real hard through this is like some conscious effort. I think that that whole story, that was an example of my dad knew the tension that had to be going on in the other room. And it was like, he had to do something to relieve it. Yeah. And, and he did. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't know if you guys were at my dad's funeral, but, um, but it was, I, I think we missed 15, that part, Brian, because right at the end, in the other room, you guys were working on planning his funeral, right? That's right. Yeah, we didn't yeah, hear that part of the story. So you were planning his funeral in the other room. And what did your dad say from his armchair? Well, you're arguing about what kind of casket he needed to have. Mm -hmm. And I saw this casket that it was just like this beautiful wooden, I mean, it looked like a, it looked like a Les Paul. <laughs> it was just this beautiful casket. And uh, of course my mom wants this real fancy traditional one. And so Dorothy Howell um, is over at our house and Dorothy walks in the kitchen just in tears, um, cracking up. And she just says, Jerry just wants to make sure that whatever you do with this casket, that it's squirrel proof. And uh, so, it, you know, at that point, we're dying. Yeah. But the guy that's there from the funeral home, I think he's about to die for other reasons, like crawling yeah. under the yeah. table. Some of the, who are these weird people? <laughs> um, but, you know, again, I, I felt like it, it took me later, maybe even years later to see that there had to just be a overwhelming level of peace and even selflessness in that moment to want to relieve our tension. Yeah. Um, while he's sitting in the other room, knowing like I am sitting here dying right yeah. now. Right. And, um, but so, you know, like a week later at my dad's funeral, I had the opportunity to give the eulogy mm. and 15 minutes before the service started, um, I pulled my sister-in-law aside, Brent's wife, and I said, I think I'm going to say something, and I need to know if you think it's okay for me to say it. And I told her, and she was like, oh, yeah, you got to say that. And so I get up at my dad's funeral, and I'm, I'm wearing like a suit, but I don't have a tie on. And I, I said, I, I, um, I know that some of you maybe here today. Um, and you know, the sanctuary at Fielder Road was full at my dad's funeral. I said, some of you are probably wondering, you know, hey, Brian, 
it's your dad's funeral. Could you not even find a tie? <laughs> um, and, and I said, well, first of all, if you're thinking that, that means that you don't really know me very well. Mm-hmm. But second, you need to know that if my dad saw me wearing a tie, the first thing he would ask me is, who died? <laughs> and at that, at that point, it was like five seconds of silence. And then I don't know who, but somebody just lost it. And it was like the, the tension in the room just went. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I really felt like that even with the 12, 15 minutes of stuff I said after that about my dad, that first joke might have been the thing I did most to honor him <laughs> in that moment. Yeah. He always wanted to, he always wanted to relieve the tension. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Uh, I love those stories. That's such a great memory. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when we're having these these hard conversations and i'm sure you you through, through that whole process there was a lot of hard conversations about how do you stay present and thinking about like listening and you're, you're listening to respond instead of just being ready to respond like in a yeah without thinking well we all do that you know we've all done it especially as we get older i think we're better at listening to listen you know uh but instead of listening to be like jumping back at people with what we think is right how do you do that yeah i i i personally think so there's two elements of it um first of all you have to become convinced like i need to do this mm-hmm. um and so something's got to kind of compel you in that direction and and then i i literally think like anything else in life you have to practice it mm-hmm. um for me, working with somebody for several years who you could be talking to the person and you were watching, like, <laughs> I would watch the person's mouth moving, like he was rehearsing what he was going to say wow. before, oh, wow. before I ever quit talking. Like, it would drive me out of my mind. Oh, wow. But rather than feeling like I really want to kill him, I just allowed it to internalize and say, I don't ever want to do that. Yeah. And so that's also, so, so that was kind of the motivator I needed, but I think that I've had to, to literally tell myself, like, as I'm talking to someone, they're talking to me, like, one of the things we go over and over again, our staff here at the Brook all, all the time is, how can we ask better questions? Mm-hmm. And the answer that we come back to more than more, more, more than anything else is the way to ask better questions is by listening in the first place. Yeah. And so if I'm on a pursuit to figure out the greatest questions I can ask somebody, that's going to demand from the beginning that I listen to them. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also going to kind of set the tone that when I'm having that conversation that I am way more ready to listen than I am to respond. Mm -hmm. Um, one of my very closest friends, uh, in Wichita, um, I don't know that for several years I realized this, but I definitely do after the fact, uh, I watched him model that for years, like 
when his name, like my brother, his name is Brent, whether it was in a meeting or anything like that, if Brent talked, everybody listened because he was always listening. Mm. And so you, you knew like if Brent speaks up, like this is not like hot headed reaction, whatever he's thought about this. Yeah. And somewhere along the way, I started thinking, I want to, I, I want to listen like Brent. Mm. Um, but it takes practice. Yeah, it really does. I really try to make sure I'm, I'm present because I, my mind does tend to tend to keep going, but like your friend Brent, you know, it's like you, he probably had more pieces to the puzzle than, and that's why you guys check back into him. You know, like he's, he's probably got more pieces of the puzzle than the yeah. rest of us because he's such a good listener. Yeah. He's know? listening and we're not. So right. Yeah, yeah for sure. That's tough. So the book right. is great and I love it's, I think it's a conversation that we need to have now is mm -hmm. how do we have better conversations mm -hmm. and speak up and talk about things that people don't necessarily want to talk about. Yeah. So yeah. for you, what's one thing that you want people to take away from the book? Mm -hmm. I think it is that, um, probably 99% of the time, if you think you need to have the conversation, you do. Yeah, mm. Mm, that's true. And probably like 95% of the time, if you think you don't, you do. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're, we're always going to gravitate to what's comfortable. Mm -hmm. And um, I just realized now that I mean, obviously, I don't want to Jesus juke the whole thing, um, but I mean, that's what drove me to drive to write the book, anyways. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of look at um, this like a chicken and an egg argument. Like, do do we not share the gospel because we're not even willing to have like awkward conversations of other sorts? Mm -hmm. um, or is it vice versa? Does it matter? I don't, I don't know. But I think that um, when you think about it, not just in spiritual terms, but relational terms, um, situations at work uh, with your neighbors, on and on and on down the list, um, there are times that one conversation could change somebody's life. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it may not be, it may be that I go thinking, I don't know why I'm supposed to go and say this to somebody, but I, I just feel like that I need to do it. And I go and they say, it is crazy that you said that. Can I share this with you? And then bleh, and say something, they may share something that has nothing to do with even what I came and brought to them. But they needed someone to listen. Yeah. Going and having that conversation, it may not even mean that what you have to say is going to be a life changer. Mm -hmm. um, somebody needs someone to speak to. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But I, if I could just sum it all up, I would just say, man, have the courage to step out in faith and give it to the Lord. Lord, I'm going, 
I'm scared to death, might even wet my pants a little, but I'm having the conversation. (laughs) And and know that so often you're going to see the reward. You're going to see the fruit from it. Um, We just got to have the courage to speak up. I have a a personal experience with that. It was interesting. I was sitting in a meeting with church people, actually, um, a, a man and a woman. And the woman, because of something I said, stood up and left the meeting in tears. <laughs> so I got a, I later was just dissecting like, and of course I wanted to say she was emotional. This was kind of blown out of proportion. You know, I just had all these thoughts about it, but I ended up texting the man in the meeting and his wife, which was someone totally different. I put them in a group message and I said, Hey, just, do you think that I needed to reach out to this other person that I had upset do you think I need to reach out? You know, what is it? Do you think that they were upset enough that that was directly from something I said, do I need to reach out? The guy responds in the group message and says, nah, it's good. <laughs> and the woman responds with like three paragraphs of yes, you should, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so I did. And once I did, you know, she, the girl I had upset responds with, listen, this had nothing to do with you. There were so many other things building up to that. And I just needed an outlet and I'm so sorry. And so it was just this whole, you know, she needed to tell me that. And I needed to tell her that I didn't, if I'd have listened to the first part of what you said of like 95% of the time I need to reach out and not, I really wouldn't have asked the question, but I might not would have done it anyway. So, you know, it was a lesson kind of for all of us, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And communication and the importance of it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Brian, Gosh, so good to catch up with you. I hope that your son comes to Texas sometime to play baseball or somewhere close. Oklahoma, we'd come up there to see him play. That's right. We would, you know, we will always go find a baseball game to watch somewhere. So you'll have to keep us in the loop on that. We're so proud of you guys. And we loved catching up with you. So many great memories of traveling with uh, youth choir and all the crazy things from youth. And yep. Lots of history and lots of memories. And we just thank you for writing this book. It's very important. And we can't wait to share it with people. Um, We're going to do a giveaway of 10 books that you have autographed for us. And so we're just super thankful and super proud of you, kid. Kid, you're not a kid. We know you as a kid. You're not a kid. I know. (laughs) I've got um, less than a month for the big 5-0. Oh, Oh, wow. That's crazy. See, that's what's so crazy is that we were babies. Yeah. Because I'm 51, Brian. Yeah. And he's 52. So while you were still in the youth, we were married, but it seems like we were, we were basically youth too. We had yeah. no, we had no business being in charge of people. I mean, that was oh, dumb. I understand. When yeah. I went to Wichita in the back of my mind, I thought you people are entrusting your kids to me. Yeah, like, I know. You're, you're nuts. We are not qualified. We're just (laughs) anyways. Well, we we appreciate you. And thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate (laughs) it. Okay. Later, man. Thanks, Brian. Scott, that was such a great interview. It really was. Yeah. Everybody needs to hear that stuff. And even though we've practiced a lot of those things, I mean, I think that some of those things we've hammered out. You, you, you always have to work at it well yeah you're but, constantly working on communication yes but some of those principles i think we have kind of hammered out just for the two of us we might not be great at it with other people point in case with yeah. my uh, example at the end with the friend of mine that i needed to text and have a conversation with yeah but i think that you know you still have to work at it you still have to work at it it gets easier with the people you love i think but it's still harder you think it's not 
Well, I think it can get, it depends. I think it goes back to what Brian was saying overall is it's your motivation. Mm -hmm. I think it can go one of two ways with the people you're closest to. Mm -hmm. I think it can get better and better if you're motivated and focused on getting better communication wise. But I think it can also get worse and worse because like when you're that close to the other person, you know, all the buttons to push yeah, (laughs) and you know, all the things you can do. Like when I was on the phone earlier mm-hmm. before the interview, that's the kind of stuff that I know just totally bothers you that you're, I'm not focused in on what you're saying. Right. So I think no matter what, we have to keep working and it's the motivation of, do I want to commu- communicate better with you mm-hmm. or my friends or people at church or people at work? Yeah. And when I do that, what are the benefits of that? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Brian's book does so well is if we can get through these hard conversations we're all going to be better for it. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I guess I was kind of thinking on the, on the like pattern of, you know, my heart the best. Mm. And so you wouldn't understand my intent the best, but you have to get yeah. to know somebody to even understand where their motivation is coming from. So, yeah. you know, that's probably, I don't know, that's another little aspect of communication. It's very complicated. We all need to work on it. <laughs> and books like Brian really help us. It reminds us of things we've forgotten. Yeah. And it gives us new things that we can work on and use mm-hmm. to communicate better with each other and that's right. people around us. So we have a giveaway of 10 books that are autographed by Brian, and we can't wait to get those in some 10 lucky people's hands and we will get on that we hope you enjoyed this episode of hardy party five and a half with brian mayfield go get you a copy of speak up hardy party five and a half over and out we'll see you next time